Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. This episode was originally recorded as a weekly live in the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition group on Facebook. If you'd like to join these lives, watch past replays, or get any of the written summaries I do for these weekly, please head to the link in the show notes, drop me a comment, I'm happy to help you out. Now, let's get on with the episode. All right, we are live, at least on my end. If you have any questions throughout this entire chat, please post them in the comments, and I'm happy to answer them as we go. Today, I want to talk about altitude. So a lot of races, ultras, trail races, happen pretty far from sea level, where many of us live, right? Like, I live in Salt Lake, which is 4,000 feet high. I lived in Park City for 7,000 feet for years. But I've also lived at sea level in Korea and Pennsylvania and many places in my past. And when you make that transition, it's pretty fucking notable, right? Like, I was in the best shape of my life when I left Korea. I just trained to compete in nationals in Frisbee. And I moved here to, like, 7,000 feet, and I got my teeth kicked in. And one moment... Jeremy, are you recording? I would love to see this, but kiddos. Absolutely, there will be a replay. There will also be a podcast replay, so no worries. There will be a way to see this in full later. No problem. So when I got here, I got my teeth kicked in by altitude. It's in really good shape, and I was born at altitude. Right? Like I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they've shown that a lot of those adaptations coming from being born and spending your first like few months of life at altitude never fully go away. You actually adapt a little faster to EPO. This is one of the reasons they think that Kenyans are such good runners. They live at six, 7,000 feet. They're all born there. They train there. They experience their entire life there. And that is one of the big things that can cause an increase in some blood markers that help you become a better athlete. But most of us, that's not an option. We're born where we're born. We're not going to move solely for our like very time-consuming and fun hobby, because that's what it is. It's a hobby. It's fun, but it's a hobby. So we're kind of where we are, unless you're a professional athlete and decide to move to either Boulder, Colorado, or like the bottom of Mount St. Helens to train. This is kind of what it is. So we need to figure out how to deal with altitude and how to make it better. The short answer is you need to train better. And there's a bunch of things we can do to eke out a little extra performance. But end of the day, your body wants stuff to stay the same. You've heard me say the word homeostasis before. It's just all of your body's systems staying where they are, where they want to be. They like to stay level. And when you go from lower altitude to higher altitude, a lot of stuff changes. And this is everything from glucose metabolism to oxygen intake to the permeation of altitude through your bloodstream. And if you are exercising at altitude, if you're exercising, a lot of this stuff happens anyway. So it's not just at altitude where you'll see these effects. You also see these things during exercise. Exercise also makes you hypoxic. 
it uh, increases your heart rate, it increases your respiratory rate, and it will cause very similar struggles. So if we can get fitter and train well, build that high VO2, build that good lactate clearance, have that really good aerobic base and fuel appropriately, then we're already 95% of the way there. So that should be our first target, is having a good training schedule, following it, not working ourselves to death, and fueling appropriately and recovering. Right? It is the same boring answer I give every week. Um, that said, we can still do some stuff to work with altitude. So let's look at what altitude does. In short pause, Esther said, I was born in Salt Lake City, but I don't seem adapted since I lived at sea level for most of my life, so looking for better tips. Absolutely. And you're not, you will lose those adaptations, right? So like, as, as I said at the beginning, before most people jumped on, I lived in Korea, I moved here. I readapted probably faster than many people, but I still noticed the fact that I had become detrained or de-used to altitude. So you will lose that unless you return to altitude. So that actually makes a bunch of sense. So what happens to your body at altitude? A lot of stuff your heart rate increases. The main thing that is happening at altitude is that there is less total oxygen in the air. It's still 21% of the air, but there are fewer total molecules, so there's less to pull from. And then there's also lower air pressure, so your lungs have to work harder to pull in the air. All of that puts you at a higher amount of stress. All right, and this becomes relevant really starting at about 1,500 feet above sea level. You'll note it's not going to be a big deal there, but that is where like high-level athletes in testing conditions can start to see changes. Most of us should really look at it in terms of like 5,000-foot blocks, which is like uh, 1,500 meters, I think is about right. And that's really what we're looking at as far as like phases of altitude. So if you're from 0 to 5,000, it's more or less the same, unless you're trying to win certain events. If you're 5,000 to 10,000, it's also more or less the same. This is kind of how we can chunk it in our brain. So because of the less oxygen and less pressure, your heart rate increases and you breathe faster to try to intake more oxygen to get more oxygen to your system. Especially when you're working heavily, your breath's going to increase anyway and your heart rate's going to increase anyway. You'll see a bigger effect here at altitude. Your VO2 max also drops. So you do not have as much of your top gear as you would at sea level. You produce more lactate, which is fine. It's a fuel, but if we're not particularly good at clearing it, then this can cause a problem because every time you use some lactate, you create some hydrogen ions and you get that burn in your legs right, or wherever you're working. So that can cause issues as well. And to be clear, this is not really an running economy impairment. This is not anything to do with that particular subset of training. This is really an aerobic issue. So the way we can improve this, short of doing some things at altitude, is to improve our aerobic conditioning. We can build a higher VO2 max. We can get better at clearing lactate and using that as a fuel. We can build a bigger aerobic base. If we do all of these things, we will be better at altitude because that is where the effects come from, right? So that, I hope that makes some level of sense. Now, 
If we look at specific strategies, you'll often hear things like live high and train low. So this comes from a study they did a while ago where they had four different groups. And this had everything from um, hypoxia tents, so altitude tents to um, people who lived high and trained high, and then lived high and trained low. They had different subsets. And they found that people who lived at altitude and trained closer to sea level seem to have the best results. Very importantly, they had the best performance results at sea level. So this is mostly true if you have the access here and then you're going to go run a race lower. Right? So like I, if I were living in Park City still, I'd be living at 7,000 feet and then I could come down to Salt Lake, do a lot of my training here at 4,000 4, feet, and then if I went to a spot at sea level, that would actually be the best of both worlds. If you are trying to train for a race that's at altitude, you might actually be better doing a large majority of your training at altitude and living at altitude and just being there because you'll get better at being at altitude because that's part of that race. Right? We have to train for the specific situations that we're seeking to achieve. So if you have your druthers and you're trying to figure this out, the best system you could set up would be live at altitude. That is where you're going to get a lot of these EPO benefits um, and all this like oxygen stuff <laughs> that happens in your body. And this is where you will see a lot of these physiological improvements, living at altitude and spending time there. If you have the possibility to do long training runs, we're talking like two, three, four plus hours at altitude, where they're nice and low and slow. You're not pushing too hard. You're not getting into that lactate space. You're not getting into that VO2 space. You're smooth, smooth and steady. If we're training these long, smooth and steady runs, if we can do that at altitude, that will also create some benefits. And then do our short, unpleasant interval work closer to sea level. And that doesn't need to be at sea level. It can be a couple thousand feet. It's whatever you have access to. But you will have a higher VO2 max, lower. So you'll be able to push harder and create better adaptations if you do your short, speedy interval work, not at altitude. So that is how you'd set it up if possible. The other option, again, is to just train more, train better, and figure out a lot of this clearance. Specifically, if I were setting up something for someone who's closer to sea level and really working to get to a race at altitude, say, say Leadville, Leadville's the obvious example because that gets to like 14,000 feet at some point, I would do probably a longer block of lactate intervals. So these 15 to 10 to 20 minute intervals with like two to one work to rest ratio where you'd do a bit of warm-up, sprint, not sprint, but like push your threshold for like 15 minutes and then rest or like walk for seven and a half and then 15, seven and a half, 15 for a total of like 30 minutes to an hour of work. Those intervals is what I would leverage because we can make a lot of improvements at lactate clearance pretty quickly and they're not miserable. They're not fun, but they're not terrible. Like VO2 max intervals can be 
pretty fucking terrible, for being honest. Like, they're three minutes on, three minutes off, and you're kind of trying to kill yourself for those three minutes. Whereas these lactate intervals can actually be kind of fun if you're into pushing hard. And we can create a lot of adaptations fairly quickly for lactate clearance, and that would be a good training block for anybody who's trying to work above their altitude or trying to race above where they currently live. We also get into travel. So a lot of us can't choose where we live, we can't move, we can't do these things. So when should you try to get to your race? There's a lot of different theories on this. Um, from what I've seen in general, the earlier you can arrive, the better. The exact time kind of depends on the altitude of the race. If your race is about 5,000 feet, three to five days is plenty of time to adapt. If your race is 5,000 to 10,000 feet, you might want like a week or two to adapt. And the range is because some people adapt faster than others. And then if you're racing somewhere like Leadville or Breckenridge in this like 10 to 15,000 foot range, you probably want more than two weeks if you can. I know most of us cannot just take two weeks off to run a single race, right? Like I can't, um, but that's what's optimal. If you can't take a two-week vacation to run for a weekend, just get there as early as you can. For most situations, more time is better. There's this idea of a honeymoon period where if you can't arrive like a week early, you want to arrive as close to your race as possible. And while a lot of very high-level people say this, um, I've not seen the full... I've not seen anything to fully back this up. And there might be a bit of a honeymoon period if you can arrive in the like one to six hours before your race. So for example, if I were here driving up 20 miles that way to the top of Snowbird to run the speed up 50K, I'd want to sleep down here, stay down here, and then jet up right before. Because there is a bit of a like overhang before you start to get these negative adaptations or negative experiences. But other than that, if you're like a day or two out, the earlier the better. And even that, there's not, again, there's not a lot you can do. Like most of us have the tra travel schedule we have. So you just gotta kinda lean into it, expect that your fitness is gonna be okay, and accept that it's, that it's fine. There are some tools that people will talk about, first of which being altitude tents where they basically remove some amount of oxygen from a room and replicate some altitude that you can design. They do work. They seem to make a small difference in fairly high-level athletes, right? So they're not going to bring you from 100th place to 3rd. They might bring you from 4th to podium, though. So... This is why you'll see them used for people like Eliud Kipchoge or whoever is trying to win these higher, like, big races because they can make a difference when we're looking at eking out every last bit. The biggest catch is that you have to spend a bunch of time in there. The body's response to hypoxia shuts down pretty quickly, so you very likely need to spend, like, 12 to 16 hours per day in an altitude tent for it to do you much good. So if you can set one up in your bedroom and your home office, you're probably good to go. 
Otherwise, it's likely not worth your time. And more importantly, it's probably not worth your money because they are just ungodly expensive. You are better off buying one of many other things that will help you out. And a hypoxic exercise doesn't seem to do much of anything, just like we were talking about earlier. If you, you know, could run nice low and slow there, fine. But you're certainly not going to want to do your intervals there. And then there's these altitude masks. They restrict the air that you can breathe in. And they claim to replicate altitude. Absolutely not true. These tools might have a purpose if your diaphragm is really weak, right? So your diaphragm is this muscle here that pulls your lungs downwards. And if you have, if you struggle to breathe because your diaphragm isn't very strong, then these things could help. They're basically like sucking through a straw. Like it makes it very hard to breathe and you can set them to like different difficulty levels. One, you could just buy a straw. That's an option. Um, two, you could just force yourself to breathe through your nose. That will also limit your intake. And even if we did both of these things, it is not going to replicate altitude. It might help you if you have something like asthma, because sometimes due to the difficulty breathing, your diaphragm can end up a little weaker. But it's certainly not going to replicate altitude. And then the ones that might actually help are hot and cold therapy. So there seems to be a good amount of carryover from specifically hot or heat therapy to altitude. For the heat, even a short protocol can make a difference. So at the end of a like 60 to 90 minute exercise session, get into a like very hot sauna for 20 to 40 minutes. If that's too long to start, that would make some sense. Um, start less and just kind of stack up. This will serve to adapt your plasma volume. Right, this comes down to heat training. If you want full heat adaptation, you likely need a lot more time. But a couple weeks of these short sessions have a lot of carryover, or enough carryover to help with altitude. It will increase your plasma volume, which will help you deliver oxygen better. And they can absolutely be like a short hack to help you adapt to altitude without ever actually being at altitude. So if you had the choice and you're going to spend a bunch of money, don't buy an altitude tent, buy a sauna, right? Or you can get a gym membership to a place like where I work for 10 bucks a month and go use the sauna. It works. Another thing that works is cold therapy. And this does nothing to adapt you for altitude, but cold therapy very quickly makes you more resilient. It boosts your dopamine, it makes your and it seems to make your nervous system just notice the lack of oxygen less. Cold showers or ice baths can both do the trick here. It doesn't have to be long. Even a couple minutes can be enough to start increasing this like effect. And the colder it is, the less time you need. So I've done studies where something 59 degrees took like an hour of exposure to create the same as 38 degrees for 15 seconds or something short. I think those are close to the right numbers. It shows you, like, if it's really cold, you don't have to be in there that long to create a bunch of adaptations. So, if we're there, like, you can't move, you can't arrive early, you don't have access to a sauna, what else can we do? More water. That's really a big one. People get dehydrated at altitude quickly. You get dehydrated much faster at altitude. So plan to up your water a bit. Correspondingly, 
you need more salt. If you're having more water, you need more salt. <laughs> so up your sodium, up your salt. More carbohydrate. So again, for the first week or so at altitude, your metabolism shifts slightly from slightly more fat metabolism to a slightly more carbohydrate-based metabolism. So if you can't get there early, plan for a little more carbohydrate intake. And then the sun. I've lived and worked at 7,000 feet for years. The sun is no joke at higher altitudes. It might, it, you'll feel it quickly. You'll get burnt. And if you're getting burnt, your body's functionally healing from a wound. So you're not going to run as well. So make sure we're using something. Zinc oxide is the right choice, right? Like use a like proper barrier sunscreen if you're worried about it. Or wear nice, light, long clothing. Again, altitude is not... The, going to be the defining factor for you in your race. You can always train better. We can fuel better. If you have a really good training plan that you've been following and you have your hydration and nutrition nailed down, then we can start to look at some things like altitude. And if you don't have access to altitude, your best guess is to plan for a little more water, plan for a little more sodium, and get into a sauna. If you have any questions on this, please pop them in the chat. I'm happy to answer them for anybody who's still here. And then I'm going to address a couple questions that were in the group. So first, I've seen a lot of talk about like post-workout protein. And I think to some degree, this is my fault. So it is very true that when you are done running, especially a longer session, that carryover of muscle breakdown will continue for a while, but, and the best way you can do this is to get enough leucine to make that stop, right? That is absolutely fa a fact. It is important. We do not need to nitpick it to death. So if you can get a meal, it's great. If you want to leverage a scoop of protein powder that will get you about 25 to 30 grams of protein, great. If you want to use some essential amino acids, also fantastic. They tend to be a little expensive, but they're at least effective, and they deliver um, enough leucine in a fairly small packet, so especially if you can't eat a lot, it's a good tool. And then some BCAAs are, would be my last choice. They tend to be a lot more affordable. They will give you that leucine to stop muscle protein breakdown, but they will do very little for recovery. They stop the damage, they don't start the recovery. Because in order to start recovery, you need all of your essential amino acids, and BCAAs only have three of them. So they can limit the damage. They can absolutely be useful during a long race, like a 100 miler, to help limit the damage, but they're not going to actually instigate your recovery. So that's why they're last on my list. Cool. Esther, how long do you stay in the sauna? I always feel like I can't breathe in one too humid and hot. So a couple things there. You can build up to it. So... When I first started, I start from scratch. The sauna at my gym is a finished sauna. Forever, I was using an infrared, and those are different. One's not necessarily better than the other. All the studies have been done on the finished one, and I just happen to have access to one now. So that's what I use. So when I first started getting into a room that was heated to 180 degrees, not that long. lasted a couple, minutes, 10 minutes. Um, Today I was in there for 25 after a run and only left because I had to get on a phone call. And it's only been a few weeks, so you can see adaptations here very quickly. If you're talking about humid, 
that is more of a steam room than a sauna. And it will still create some adaptations, but typically they're not quite hot enough to do as good of a job. So you actually would theoretically need to be in there longer. There's not a lot of research done on the steam room, but they're not, they're not going to hurt. And they've shown that even like a hot bath or a hot shower can create some of the same, same adaptations. But if you're really looking to like fast track the process, you want to find a very hot, like finished style, dry sauna, not something humid. Okay. Next question. My, this from Dina. My feet kill me after races. No blisters, but it feels like I need more of a cushioned shoe. I'm in a Brooks, Brooks Ghost currently. Do you have any suggestions for a cushier road shoe? And thank you to Tara for answering this. Um, I'm not a big gear person. I find a thing and I use it until it doesn't work anymore, and then I find another thing. Right now, and I'll answer your question on my end in a sec, but from Tara, I have the same problem. I went to REI yesterday, and they recommended three different shoe styles, all with maximum cushion. I chose Hoka Speed Goats, went on a run, and the difference is real. So that worked for her. Um, Hoka's don't work for me. I've never tried on the wider box version of them. I know they have an extra wide, but my feet are kind of square, so they don't work for me very well. Cool, Esther, Hoka Rencon 3, there's another recommendation. Thank you. Um, so I started running in these, which is an Ultra Escalante. They're designed as a road shoe, but I have like been bare, more or less barefoot for years now, unless I was running heavy machinery and being forced to be in boots. And when I started running, especially longer distances, my calves feel like they wanted to jump off my body and <laughs> choke me to death because um, they were pissed. So I got the Solomon Ultra Glide. It is a much cushier shoe. I do not wear that thing around because it feels like I'm walking on marshmallows. I don't like it, but when I'm running, it is golden. <laughs> it absolutely helps my feet and calves. So yes, the answer is probably more cushion. We could have discussions and arguments all day about whether you should bother training your feet to deal with a thinner shoe. It doesn't matter. Sure, your feet could probably be stronger. In the meantime, Go try on some cushier shoes that will help you run until they're, uh, until they're stronger. Or screw it. It doesn't matter. Find some cushion. That's the one I was thinking of. Thank you, Esther. Brooks Glycerin. Those things are supposed to be like a pillow. Brooks Glycerin could definitely be your answer. All right, next one. In the several days before a major trail running ultra, about 100 kilometers, what supplementation and amounts would one have in the diet to be ready for the big one? Um, magnesium, creatine, potassium, CoQ10, sodium, etc. Question mark. And my first answer, which I put in the group, was it really depends on your diet in general. Whether you are currently eating like a full array of nutrient dense foods, are you getting enough potassium? Are you getting enough calcium? Like, what do you eat? If you go into a race having eaten nothing but pasta or bread for three weeks prior, then you probably need a ton of supplementation because you're deficient in everything, right? Like, that's, that's how that works, except for carbohydrate. Um, if you eat a fairly paleo diet, then you might want to boost your carbs prior. I don't know. Works, whatever works for you. So the answer here was keto carnivore, uh, plenty of nutrient-rich foods, 
I'm just looking at what to add to close to events, especially in the days before to load micros where appropriate. Normally I take magnesium times two daily, uh, glycinate, D3, K2, and sometimes collagen, that's it. So short answer would be, um, and I don't want to get into a keto carnivore debate right now, we're just not going to do that. So the short answer to your um, question about micros, magnesium is a good one. It's required in general. You clearly take some in general. Um, Magnesium times two means nothing to me. So just to demonstrate, I use this one, pure encapsulations magnesium glycinate. I take two of those daily, which provides me about 60% of my magnesium. Um, if you eat a bunch of green plants, you might need less than that. If you don't eat any, you might need more than that. It's kind of where, where that sits, right? Magnesium would definitely be helpful. It's required for your muscles to do their job. Calcium. If you or like some carnivores and eat eggshells and bone meal and get a bunch of calcium, great. If not, then you might need to supplement with that a little bit. There's not a ton in meat. There's a ton in certain animal products. There's not a ton in like muscle meat. So you might need to supplement a little bit with some calcium to help your muscles fire. It is required. They, calcium and phosphorus are required for your muscles to do their job. So you might need some. You get plenty of phosphorus because you eat a bunch of meat. There's a ton in there. Potassium. Raw meat has plenty of potassium, but loses a lot in the cooking. You can preserve it if you boil your meat or stew it and then drink all the juice along with your meat. If you don't do that, you might want to boost your potassium a little bit. There's not a lot in animal products unless you prepare it the way I just mentioned, so you're going to have to find something. And then an electrolyte blender, what have you, right? You want a good amount of potassium, and you want it to be pretty in proportion to your sodium, which you should also probably increase during your race. So you're going to need to crank your potassium and do it safely. If you just take a ton of a potassium citrate powder, you're going to stop your heart. So you need to take it appropriately. I would get an electrolyte powder from something, somebody like Scratch or um, Element, right? Element's really popular with the carnivore community, and for good reason. It has a bunch of the things in there that that particular diet is deficient in. So I would probably target Element. And then vitamin C would be another concern. There's very few, very little of it in, um, in meat products, right? And this would be a concern generally. It's, more of an, it's even more of a concern for athletes who, with a lot of impact. So be that football or running, right, that pound, 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 pound. If you're having a lot of impact, you're doing a number on your tendons. And you need vitamin C for collagen to synthesize. So you can take all the collagen in the world, you can eat, you could eat nothing but gristle and chicken skin, and it wouldn't turn into what it's supposed to turn into, because you need vitamin C for it to work. So I would consider supplementing with a bit of vitamin C as well. Uh, other ones you asked about CoQ10, probably not. Um, that's pretty heavy in more meat-heavy diets, and especially if you eat, eat eggs, you're good to go, because uh, choline helps that. Uh, creatine, if you eat a bunch of steak, no. Um, I think creatine is a great supplement. I take it about five grams a day if I remember and think more endurance athletes could benefit from it. It helps you store water where you want to store water and not where you don't. And it helps with muscle synthesis and all sorts of shit. Um, creatine monohydrate is the most studied supplement on the planet. It's cheaper than dirt and could definitely help you out. That said, if you're eating a bunch of red meat, you're probably getting a bunch anyway, so you might not need to supplement with it. And that's about it. The top of my head. There might be some other stuff. Um, 
if you eat a bunch of your organ meats and all that stuff, you're probably good to go. If you don't and you eat nothing but muscle meat, then you have a bigger deficit. I would look at an element powder is the short answer. And then some vitamin C. You probably don't need any collagen unless you don't need your gristle. All right. That's all I have. There's no more questions in the chat. If anybody has any questions, pop them in. I will have this up as a podcast episode in the next day-ish. I'm going on a trip for the next seven days. So if you have any questions, hit me. Uh, Tomorrow I'll be traveling for 10 hours, but otherwise I'll be around. So hope you have a good rest of your week, and I will be here next week in some form or another. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian, and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.